This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're taking a look at the world of lobbying with the help of Ted Patrikas, who recently retired after decades of representing the interests of the Retail Council of New York State here in the halls of the state capitol. Ted has written about some of his experiences and sharing some insights on lobbying for his new book, Lobbying 101, What It Is Exactly That You Do. Welcome to the show, Ted, and congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. So I want to start with the subheadline of the book, which is sort of a unique phrasing of a question. And I have to imagine there's something you're trying to get across or uh, an anecdote that you're trying to relay with that full title. So can you kind of talk to us about uh, the title and its origins? Sure. That's a great question. The The, the full title came about um, when I was in the final stages of preparing the book through um, the the Kindle Direct Publishing, which is where I did it, and it said, "What's the subtitle of your book?" And I t- subtitle of your book, and I thought, "I don't know." So I looked back at the at the title and the theme of the book, and thought about for the past thirty plus years, people would say to me, "Oh, you're a lobbyist. What is it exactly that you do?" And I just threw that in there, and then I decided to keep it. So. Um, it, it's it's a signal to the often asked question, and, and in this book, it took me a couple hundred pages to answer it. Lobbying traditionally has a, a bad rap, but you have made the argument that lobbying plays an important part in crafting good public policy. So before we get to the negative side of things, what's the best case scenario for lobbying in the governmental process? I I would say that the best case scenario is the ability for two or more sides to sit down and craft new policy, whether that's statutory law, administrative law, however you want to take a look at it, and craft something that will not only stand the test of of the courts, but really work for the public. And, you know, I, I... filter that through the very narrow lens of of the the issue space that I worked in, which was retail, which is actually an immensely broad um, landscape. You know, we we did everything from labor law to tax law to consumer protection, but we'd have legislators come in and and they had great ideas to do this, that, or the other thing. And, and it was our job to go in and not stand in the way if it was a good idea, but say, wait a minute, here's how the retail industry works. Let's take your idea and try to put it into reality. And I think when when a lobbyist can take an idea and put it into reality, when a legislator or staff will work with that lobbyist to do so, you come up with something better. You avoid things that are terrible. I mean, you know, we, we spent a lot of time trying to kill stuff that we thought, no, that's never going to work. And the consumers aren't going to like that. So so I think um, the the lobbyist's best job or when it's done at its peak, it's to forward the public interest in whatever the issue space is and come up with something that will last and will make a difference. Well, what are the hallmarks of a good lobbyist or, or an effective lobbyist? Um, from my perspective, it's somebody who is on the outside of the process, doesn't inject too deeply into it. You have to remember what your role is. You're not on the floor of the Senate or the Assembly casting a vote. You don't have to go back 
to X number of constituents and 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 try to get reelected in two years. I mean, we had to um, at the retail council, we had to get reelected every year by our board of directors. Um, so we had constituents of our own. But I think good lobbying is you're on the outside of the process looking in. You're helping the legislator do his or her work to get to that point where the public policy is moving forward in a positive way. But what ensures that A, you have a lawmaker's ear to begin with, and B, that your argument is going to be something that they're then receptive to, and C, that they will then have the juice to move it through the Capitol? I mean, there seems like there's a lot of different elements involved with this. So how do you be successful at all three of those? Well, it takes time and and it, you, you have to work a long time to build your reputation as somebody that the legislator uh, or his or her staff or the senior staff or leadership can trust, that your information is good, that you're in there for, um, you know, you're recognizing that they're doing their job. Gosh, I joined the Retail Council in 1989, and I think it was um, three or four years of just going down and kind of loitering around the the lobby and the Senate and the Assembly, and people get to know who you are, you know, and, and you go to committee meetings, and you talk to people, and you're an honest broker, and when you, when you reach that level, um, and you maintain that level, because you can blow it with one bad meeting. You tell somebody something wrong or or you pretend that you're the smartest guy in the room and you try to lord over everybody. Um, it's going to take you a long time to get back from that particular error. Um, but but I think once you get to that point of trust, then the conversations, I don't want to say they become easier, um, but they become more enlightening. Some of my favorite legislators uh, were the ones who made me work the hardest. I mean, I used to break into a sweat when I had to go into a meeting with Richard Brodsky um, because he would just, you know, he'd, he'd pummel you with questions. But, you know, like you feel after a good workout, you'd walk out of those rooms and be like, yeah, I just did that, man. I just I answered his questions. And it was all in an effort for them to decide how they were going to vote or whether they were going to support a thing moving through the process or kill a thing moving through the process. Um, but tough questions were the good ones, and those are the ones that I enjoyed the most. Well, before we move on, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. Uh, we're speaking with Ted Patrikis, who recently retired after decades of representing the interests of the Retail Council of New York State. And Ted has written about some of his experiences and some of his insights on lobbying for his new book, Lobbying 101, what is it exactly that you do? So I was curious how much of lobbying in general and in your own experience is just about appeasing clients when they might have unrealistic expectations based on what can and can't actually get done in Albany. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, frankly, I'm surprised that the board of directors of the Retail Council kept me on as long as they did because I used to say no. It's just not going to happen. You you can't do that. Or um, I, I write extensively in this book about um, the whole minimum wage going to $15 an hour, even before that going to $9 an hour. You know, it's counterintuitive that the retail council would, would support something like that. And yet we did. Um, because what I did was I went to our members and I said, guys, you're either on the train or you're, you're, you're going to get run over by it. Good lobbying. And there are tons and tons of good lobbyists in Albany. Um, and everywhere who will say to their clients, um, 
I know that's not what you want to hear, but this is what you got to hear. You can lose clients. Retail council lost members now and again, um, but I think it's a, a vital part because if you if you if you drag somebody on, yeah, it's kind of lame. You know, you're you're dragging somebody on just to get the retainer fee the next year, and you're promising them year after year. I used to have a um, uh, one of those inspirational postcards. I had it on the wall of my office, and it was two hands shaking uh, in an agreement, and it said consulting. Um, something about uh, because there's money to be made by prolonging the problem. I never wanted to do that at the retail council anyway. It was like, let's let's get something done and move on. You mentioned the minimum wage issue that you write about in the book. And specifically, you talk about joining a task force that uh, Governor Cuomo had put together in 2015, 2016 to garner support for raising the minimum wage, something that uh, your members might not traditionally ha have supported. Do you ultimately feel like being a part of the conversation was beneficial for your members? Or, or do you worry at all in hindsight that the governor essentially co-opted you as a potential voice for opposition that you might have had if you were on the outside and had more, and you know, instead of lending credence to the uh, minimum wage push that the governor had? Great question. Uh, in in hindsight, it didn't take hindsight. I mean, I, I knew right off the bat what was going on. It was, okay, we've got a labor leader. We've got somebody from the the faith community. And, and then we got to have a business guy. And, and it was me. It was, I mean, not me, Ted. It was the retail council. Leading up to that, um, we had been active in helping with um, with things like the Paid Family and Medical Leave Act. We had been on the constructive side of the minimum wage debate when it had come up years before, like 2006 and then 11 or whenever it was coming up over and over again, because I really believed that that we were in a better position as an organization. That was the way that that bill was going to go especially the the fight for 15. I mean, every every single poll said this is the way it was going to happen. It was an inevitable thing. I believed, and it came true, that we were able to get a, a, a better, I don't want to say deal, but, but a more meaningful process through for the retailers anyway, by having the, the slower ramp, for example, in upstate New York. We had, we had quite a bit to do with that. And plus, you know, anybody looking at the politics back then should have been able to see that the state legislature was drifting farther to the left. And, um, you know, here we are now in 2023, and it's been that way for a few years. And I think being on that panel, gosh, I think I, I think my title was co-chair of, of that panel. And but I think doing that um, really added to the retail industry's credibility on any number of other issues with with people who would traditionally be thought of as on the other side. You know, we could go into meetings and they'd say, oh, okay, you were with us on minimum wage. What do you got? Um, I think it showed a certain degree of reasonableness on the part of the retailers. And I will say this, our membership came through. They authorized us to um, to take that role and um, there was no opposition from our membership. I had to straighten a few things out on the inside along the way. Um, but but it was it was good work, and I'm glad that we did it. 
you mentioned new partners, but did it soil your relationship at all with uh, the Senate Republicans who were in the majority at the time and might have looked to you guys for some sort of political cover as they were you know, generally opposed to, to this issue? Yes, it did. Um, I, I got a few bricks thrown at me along the way. Um, at, at one point, I, you know, I was, I, I was told, well, the retail council, because you guys split, we lost the minimum wage. And I laughed because, uh, my response was, well, you know, we've never, ever in the, and by this time, I think I had been at the council for nearly 30 years. I said, in my whole career here, we've never been so powerful as to move the needle on an issue entirely on our own. So Thank you for making us think that we're that powerful. Um, I was not delusional enough to think that we did. And I know that they were just looking for somebody to blame. Um, that thing was going to happen regardless of which side the retail council was on. And um, yeah, we had a little fun with it. And I had to sit in the bad boy chair for a little while. And after a quick break, we'll have more with Ted Patrikis, who recently retired after decades of representing the interests of the Retail Council of New York State here at the halls of the state capitol, and has written about some of his experiences as well as some of his insights on lobbying for his new book, Lobbying 101, What Is It Exactly That You Do? Don't go anywhere. business agency or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation with Ted Patrikis, who recently retired after decades representing the interests of the Retail Council of New York State here in the halls of the state capitol. And Ted has written about some of his experiences and his insights on lobbying for his new book, Lobbying 101, What Is It Exactly That You Do? You briefly served at the Retail Council during the latest version of Democratic-controlled politics in Albany. I'm curious how this current go around that you were there for 2019 and 2020 uh, compared to 2009 and 2010. Huh. 2009 and 2010, I think I spent a good deal of time hiding under my desk. You know, like you, you, the, you see the pictures of the kids in, um, in elementary schools in the 50s and 60s for the nuke test. It's like, get under your desk, hide. Yeah, and I and I should say that for listeners who don't remember, the Senate Democrats briefly held a very slim majority from 2009 to 2010. Yeah, there there were some pretty bonkers things that were going on then. It was an entirely different situation in 2019 and 2020, where we had a lot of really good conversations about um, the application of sales tax on internet purchases, you know, there, that thing had been, um, the, the Senate majority Republicans had sat on that thing for a few years because the, the trope was, oh, you're going to kill the internet and you, it's a new tax and you, you'd have to go in and try to condense these ridiculously long arguments into 10 second sound bites because we were up against the argument that it was a new tax. Well, 
how do we explain that? It would take a little while. Um, you know, by the time uh, the the Democrats took over in, in 2019, you know, we had, had so many conversations with Senator Liz Krueger about it that she knew exactly what we were talking about. The, the things that we had been talking about for years with them. And when they were in the minority, if I were still there today, I would feel this way about dealing with the Senate Republicans and with the Assembly Republicans. Don't ignore the 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 other side, the the minority parties. Go in and chat with them. Number one, you never know when they're going to be in the majority again, or if they switch houses and they they move up or move out. But the other part is, I believe really strongly in in respecting anybody who gets elected to office. Um, you know, deal with them on these issues. And and that worked very well in 19 and 20 when we had some issues to go in with and the Senate was receptive to us. So it was, it was, it was all good. During your multi-decade career in government affairs, really, there were changes to uh, the rules governing relationships between uh, lobbyists and state lawmakers. How did you see those changes play out in any meaningful ways? They they really didn't affect my work at the Retail Council, nor did they affect the Retail Council's work. We would do things when I first got there in the 80s and early 90s, and you could do things like have dinners. We would take legislators out for dinner. But my my boss at the time, my two bosses, Jim Coremba and Jim Sharon, had an absolute rock solid rule that we would not talk business. We talked about baseball. We talked about opera because um, Jim Q was a big opera fan. Uh, we'd talk about anything but the state legislature. And and those dinners, I thought, were very important because they got to see a personal side of us and we got to learn a personal side of them. And I think that's something that's lacking. I I, I do um, think that, that that's a missed opportunity to bring a little humanity into the process. But as far as doing things like big junkets and, and throwing big receptions and stuff like that, um, the Retail Council never did it. So as those rules changed we just sort of sat on the sideline sidelines and thought for everybody else well too bad for you um glad we're not doing this so they, they those didn't really affect us do you think new york has meaningful ethics laws when it comes to preventing or detecting bad behavior by lobbyists um i only know that to the extent that we always passed our jcope and it's predecessors and antecedents, we always passed our uh, our surprise um, visits with flying colors. In fact, we would get told that we were disclosing too much information. Um, so, you know, to that extent, and the same with the Board of Elections, you know, we, we never had any issues with them. So, um, so I, I guess I can't really judge that from being on the outside. We were good little Boy Scouts. Is lobbying the regulatory process in New York as important, if not more important sometimes, as lobbying for the passage of a bill? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think it's gotten more so. We we found that it got more so over the years because so many uh, pieces of legislation that would make it to the governor's desk said to subject, you know, it's it's pursuant to the regulations from the whatever agency. You know, it was like that old Gary Larson far side cartoon with the guy that had the big equation on the board 
And then at the bottom, they had the equal sign and they said, and then a miracle happens. So we're going to do all this great stuff, but it's subject to the, the drafting of these regs. So it's the drafting of the regs where the proverbial rubber hit the road. And um, I think having a good relationship with state agencies is, is very, very important because that's where you're going to actually find out um, how these things get implemented and how they'll affect your, in, in the case of the retail council, your members on a, on a daily basis. And then from a lobbying perspective, does it help when you're lobbying the regulatory process, when you're lobbying the state agencies? Does it help the fact that reporters don't really follow the regulatory process very well, that we really kind of check out on an issue once it's passed the legislature and has been signed into law? Um, I think if if you're the sort who wants to do things in a sub rosa way or the less that the public knows about it, the better off you are, then somebody might answer it in that way. But I guess I can only look at it from my own perspective. And I'm, I'm a bit of a I'm compulsively candid. So whenever we were working with the state agency, if ever I got a phone call, we did a lot of work with the Department of Labor on things like um, uh, just-in-time scheduling and stuff like that. If, if anybody would call, I'd say, sure, here's what we're working on. Here's what's happening. The tax department with these with these different um, weeks without sales tax and the sales tax on clothing and footwear. I just I just believe in total candor along the way. And, um, you know, nothing good comes from trying to hide it. Well, speaking of candor, there's a state website that is supposed to track meetings between lobbyists and government officials. So if you want to, say, lobby on all on-call scheduling or uh, other issues that the retail council might have cared about there's needs to be a filing about that what do you think about disclosing those types of meetings is that beneficial to the public is it just extra work for businesses what do you, what's your thought I, I thank you for asking that one i think it just makes um people feel good it's like oh look at this we're we're being open in government by saying that ted met with commissioner x or senator y I don't know if they still do it because thank goodness I haven't had to fill one of these out in a few years, but the J-Cope thing, you'd have to list the bill numbers that you were working on, uh, on your, on your semi-annual or your every other month filing. Mm-hmm. And it would just be this list of bills. And you know what? That is, that is such inside baseball. No one outside of the immediate orbit of the state Capitol gives a rip what a bill number is. They just don't care. Um, but if you filled out that form, you were checking the box and you were fully in compliance and it just didn't mean anything. You know, if somebody in Syracuse or in, in Albany, for crying out loud, who doesn't work for the state legislature, wants to know what's happening with a bill to, um, I don't know, prohibit blue pens from being used in a on a legal pad. Well, you don't know what that bill number is. You don't know who's talking about it or what they're talking about. Um, so, so I think sometimes these these band aid things, uh, they they fit the press release really well, and they make everybody feel good, and they pat themselves on the back, and they move on to the next thing. But I think it's a lot of busy work for nothing. You don't think that type of disclosure helps the public, though, in the sense that reporters know how to look up bill numbers, and then they can see who's lobbying on a certain bill and help to know what the different interests are on it. To a certain extent, the, I would agree with that. But do the reporters take the time 
um, to do that? And how deeply into the meetings are they going to go? Um, was this a meeting about amendments? Was this a meeting to just flat out kill the thing? Was this a meeting to talk about something else? Um, what did you talk about when you talked about Senate Bill 7642? Did you talk about amendments? Did you talk about where it came from? Those are the questions. And, and perhaps the the disclosure can can prompt those questions. But I think uh, when it's billed as, oh my gosh, we've got this fantastic open government here, you can log in and you can find out who's doing what with whom. Um, I think it falls a little bit short. I'd have no problem if the if the form said, what bill did you talk about? What was the topic? And what did you talk about? You know, it might take a little time. And I'm sure lobbyists who are listening to this right now and their compliance people are like, no, Ted, be quiet. Stop it. Don't give anybody any ideas. But I just never saw any value um, in, in the way the disclosure system is set up now. I think it's a lot of busy work, not just for the lobbyists and their compliance people, but for the people who have to file it and figure out what's up. When you think about state government reporters, are there any misconceptions that you think we hang on to about uh, the world of lobbying that maybe isn't reflective of how things really are or, or maybe aren't reflective of how the, the majority of lobbyists operate? Only one. And I will say, um, you know, because I'm 2,800 miles away and uh, two years away from having been in the business, um, I thought the Capitol Press Corps was fantastic to work with um i used to see you know the the scrums and 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 the the questions i thought that that once you were working in that part of the capitol building to me it was like this little um it was a step up you were able to do something that not everybody in the newsroom could do so i always thought that that the capitol press corps was was a really solid bunch the one thing that drives me crazy is, um, and I still subscribe to a couple of Albany-based newspapers. What drives me nuts is every year around March, you get that same tired story about fundraisers and how here we go, everybody's going off to these um, fantastic fundraisers and they're all dressed up and they're having expensive cocktails and, and bacon-wrapped scallops and all those other things. Fundraisers are the biggest pain in the neck on the planet. And anybody who likes them, um, well, good for you. But that was the biggest dredge of being a lobbyist for me. And I, I used to get really irritated how the stories that would come out would make it sound like it was something fun. No, no, I hated them. <laughs> Couldn't stand them. So that I would say that's the only trope that I would would uh, would get rid of. Um, but, you know. <laughs> That's me. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Ted Patrikas. His new book is Lobbying 101. What is it exactly that you do, which you can find on that popular online bookseller? You all know the one we're talking about. Ted, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.